All right, good morning again, Third Street. Man, I thought the second time would be a little bit better. Come on, let's try it again. Good morning again, Third Street. All right, all right. So for those of you who do not know me, my name is Deshaun. Most people call me Dish, one of the associate pastors here. I am not Corey. I know you may have looked on the website or looked on Facebook and like, that's not Corey. Yes, he's a different shade of color than I am. But we are brothers from another mother. I don't know where he is. Um, Rob thinks he's working part-time for a different church. I don't know if that's true. I don't think so. So if you are here this morning and you're joining us, we are in this series called Book of Joseph. Everybody say Book of Joseph. All right. Who can tell me where the Book of Joseph is? That's right. Oh, we got a smart church. Amen. All right. So uh, the Book of Joseph, uh, if you have been with us, you know that it is a series going through the misconceptions of things that we think are in the Bible, but in matter of fact, are found nowhere in Scripture, or there are misreadings or misunderstandings of what's actually in Scripture, right? Uh, so the first week uh, we went through, and Corey set the, the groundwork, Pastor Corey set the groundwork for us, showing us uh, that if we do not understand Scripture, if we don't know the Word of God that's given to us, then it's easy for us to fall into some of these traps and misconceptions and misunderstandings of what's actually in the Bible. Uh, we are susceptible to missing the actual point for in favor of what culture is really all about or, or whatever happens to be in vogue at that time in the culture. So that was, that was week one. Week two, Pastor KT talked about the phrase, God knows my heart. And God knows my heart is nowhere in the Bible, but it is used often when you're trying to make an excuse for sinful living or doing something that you know shouldn't be done. But you'll say, well, but God knows my heart. Yeah, these are my actions, but, but God knows my heart. Um, and talked about how that's a, that's, that's a trap because it keeps us from repenting in the way that God asked us to, right? And then last week, Pastor Rachel, the first lady herself, walked us through Proverbs 31 and how the Proverbs 31 woman uh, is often mistaken as a checklist for young men that are dating and trying to find that right one. And they check off the list. And if they don't, you know, if that lady doesn't check off the list, you go find someone else. You know, um, that's not true. That's not how it was meant to be. It was, in fact, advice from a mother to her, her son looking for a wife, but more importantly, preparing him to have good character in the way that he lived. And then from that good character, then he would honor his, his wife, whoever she may be, in the way that God intended. Amen. So that's where we were. That's where we've been. And today I get the great honor of dispelling yet another book of Josephism. Just made that up. That should be in the Bible. Yeah, you got it. Maybe the most widely known of them, as a matter of fact. I'm sorry, what? Almost, almost. That's probably next week. You want to preach on that next week? (laughs) Come on. No, this one is God helps those who help themselves. Huh? Yeah, no, that's not quoted. Don't quote it back like it's it's real. That's not not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. So statistics actually say that about half of you just now found out that that wasn't in the Bible. I'm just saying, this guy named Barn that does all these amazing statistics on like Christian worldview and beliefs, and he's like 51%, 52% of Christians were responding that that was something that was found in the book of Joseph. Um, <laughs> y'all just caught that. Uh, so it's found nowhere in Scripture at all. You can go from Genesis to Revelations. You can even throw in some of the apocryphal books. I don't think you'll find it there. The most, the most commonly known, probably the most commonly known 
uh, belief of God helps those who help themselves is nowhere in the Bible. So why is it so common? And why do we believe in it? Where did it come from? So before we go in too far, uh, let me just say, I don't want to have you guys go into your grandma's and, and those people in your home and, and people who've raised you and been like, you lied to me, right? Don't tell them that I said that. Tell them that the Bible doesn't have that in there and they need to go read their word a little bit more. That's all I'm going to say to that, okay? <laughs> so growing up, growing up, I, I had an, a cousin. Her name was Violet. And I grew up in Kenya. I was born in Kenya. I uh, lived there for seven years, been here now for X amount of years. Uh, and uh, Violet was a great storyteller. She was amazing. She was one of those people that she would sit you down and you start to hear a story and she would just capture your attention from beginning to end. Every syllable, every word, every expression, everything. Perfect. She was amazing at it. And to top it off, she was telling African proverbs. I mean, so you know they were good. Like these were like legit, right? Like the cradle of life kind of stories, right? And so she would tell these amazing stories and capture us. And so I have tried as a father to do that same thing for my kids. And it's not gone as expected, but I'm getting there. It's a work in progress. I love to tell stories. I love to make them up for the kids. And at the end, sometimes they're like, wow, dad, that's amazing. And sometimes they're like, what? I'm like, good night. Go to sleep. Let's think on it in your sleep. One of the greatest storytellers of all time was this guy named Aesop. Everybody say Aesop. Not ASAP, not ASAP Rocky, Aesop, right? So this guy named Aesop is a Greek storyteller, a Greek fable writer. They call him a fabulist. So he wrote these fables and these stories, and they collected them together called Aesop's Fables. Now, Aesop's Fables are widely known. There's many of them, and they're used, you know, just as, as children's stories. People grew up on them. One of the greatest known of Aesop's Fables was one called Hercules and the Wagoneer. So it goes a little something like this. I'm going to paraphrase it um, just so we get the idea of it. So there was a farmer, a wagoneer. He was driving along, riding along, because in that time they had wagons with wagon wheels and a horse carrying it. Um, if you've ever been to Amish country, you get the idea. So we're riding along on this road, and it's a muddy road. It's been raining, and he's, he's got his, his, his wagon is full of all kinds of stuff. It's loaded up. And his wagon starts to sink gradually into the mud. And it gets down into the mud to the point where the wheel can't move anymore. It's like at the hub, at the middle point of the wheel. So he steps out, goes around to it like many of us have when we've gotten a flat tire. He looks at his wheel, and he curses his bad luck and calls out to Hercules to help him. Something similar happened to me on I-80. I got out of the car. I said some nice things, and I asked God to help me. And, and, and he did, he did, uh, because I had stuff in the back to change the tire out, so it was good. We made it home. <laughs> so he calls out to Hercules, and he says, Hercules, come help me. <clears throat> and, and Hercules pops on the scene and starts laughing. Ha-ha, you need my help. And he says, look, what do you think you're going to do getting this wheelchair? Like, you think you're going to move this by just whining and complaining? He says, no, put your shoulder into the wheel, start pushing it get it out of the mud, and then you can get moving. He says, the gods help those who help themselves. So that's where it comes from. I'm not helping you until you put some effort in for yourself. 
So the farmer got down. He started pushing. He got the wagon out, and he started rolling along. He learned a valuable lesson in self-reliance and initiative and work and diligence. Now, on the face, this is a good moral story, right? There's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with self-initiative. There's not, nothing wrong with not complaining and you know, taking some initiative and things, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, the Bible has several passages that are similar. They kind of allude to the same idea. Proverbs 12, 11 says, A hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies has no sense. Colossians 3.23 says, Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. So what's the issue then? What's the point of my sermon? What's, what am I doing up here? Clearly we're supposed to work hard and not be lazy. Right? But what's actually meant when we say the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? What's usually insinuated by that? Ben Franklin used the same phrase. People say, well, Ben Franklin was a Christian. He used that phrase. Ben Franklin was not a Christian. He was a deist. He believed in a God that was far off, that set things in motion, and then let you go about your own way. But he used that when he was talking about taxes, about helping people, about, hey, you need to have your own initiative. I'm not getting political. I'm just saying this is the things we believe in our culture, right? If God helps those who help themselves, the inverse statement, which is God doesn't help those who don't help themselves. Just putting it out there. Just think about it. In order to matter to God, does that mean that we have to work hard and gain his approval and attention and maybe some of his help? I'm not saying that's how you think it. I'm just saying some people think of it that way, right? So let's jump into our first passage, Philippians 3, verse 2 to 10. If you happen to have your physical Bibles with you, you can turn there. It's right before Colossians, right after Ephesians, back of the Bible. If you don't, it's up on the screen for you, or you can look at it on your phone. And the context of this passage is this apostle named Paul. Follower of Jesus, after Jesus, after Jesus had died, came on the scene. He actually uh, was a very zealous, he was a very um, energetic persecutor of the church. Uh, and um, he had an experience where Jesus met him and changed his life, frankly. Became one of the most amazing and prolific ministers of all time. And he's writing a letter to the church in Philippi one of the churches that he'd helped plant. And his church is experiencing some, some doctrinal arguments, some ideas that are coming in that are starting to shake things up. Some, some people who had been Jewish and believed in the old law strongly, and they felt like if you're going to follow Jesus, then you need to be like we were. Like, we, hey, look, I had to go through this thing called circumcision. You're going to go through it too, right? And so these people were telling the people in the, Philippi, in the church of Philippi, you need to do this in order to be part of God's family. You have to do X, Y, and Z. And so he says to them with some pretty strong language, look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's, that's strong, Paul. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, 
I have more. Bragging a little bit there, Paul. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, everything, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered. For his sake, I have suffered. Suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I, may, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So my first point at Third Street, we are a church that believes in the triune God. We established our church on Third Street. Our logo has three columns and we do three point messages. So I have three points and then I'll let you go. My first point is your resume doesn't matter to Jesus. Your resume does not matter to Jesus. Now, I know for some of you, you're like, I just did my resume. It doesn't matter to Jesus. I recently actually had to update my own resume. So I, I was approached by one of my former uh, bosses, and she had a job that she wanted me to apply for, consider doing it. So I prayed about it, talked about it with Jordan. She said, go for it. I applied. But what you have to do when you're applying for a job is update your resume. So I, I started to do that. It was weird. I don't like doing it. I'm one of those people that, that struggle with a condition called humble braggery. Everybody say humble braggery. Another word I just made up is going to be in Webster someday. Humble braggery is when you're really proud of your accomplishments, but you don't want anybody to know that you're proud, and so you're really humble and you play it down. Like, <laughs> no, please, please, no, stop, please, no more. Come on, keep them. no more. That's humble braggery. That's for free. You can keep it. Don't use it without telling me, though. I don't like to, pro I don't like to promote myself naturally, right? But, man, I, I really love being told that I've done a good job. I love the affirmation I get from, from people telling me I've done a good job. I love the affirmation of someone looking at my resume and going, man, you said, look at these things. And I'm like, no, please, no stop. It's a problem. I know. Okay, Jesus is working on me. Okay, I'm a work in progress. But what you update, when you update your resume, you know, I forgot that you have to, you have to really sell yourself. You have to put stuff out there, you know, make, your, make, your, make yourself uh, a worthy candidate. Uh, you put your accomplishments out there. And, and I, like I said, I don't know if it's nature or nurture. It's just, it's strange to me. My wife had some good advice being the wise woman that she is. She said, look, just put the facts on there and let them ask questions at the interview. Wow, I never thought of that. That's amazing. That's why God knew she knew I needed her. She, she did. So that's what I did, right? I, I put my facts on there, and I, I allowed for the interview to carry forward. It was fine. It was great. The Apostle Paul puts his facts down. He lays it out. He's the most qualified person to brag about his credentials. He, he, when it comes to religious righteousness, Blameless. He's putting it forward and he's laying it down and making it pretty clear to the church of Philippi 
that they, they, they should know who's talking to them. They should know that he has the authority to say the things that he's saying. Amen? So he's saying these things. He takes his resume, polished and filled to the margins and spelt checked twice and three times. And he goes, look, this is my, my resume right here. You see I got page one, page two, page three and four. And I, I think I had another reference page somewhere. He takes it and he goes, it's garbage. Throws it away. It means nothing. It's not my real resume, by the way. Don't worry. If it was a job interview, that's what I imagine Paul would do. Come in in his fantastic-looking robe and sandals, sitting down, talking to the interviewee, and they're, they're asking these questions, and he spells it out, and he just says, yeah, that's great. Those are all good. Let me, let me, let me see that. Throws it away. He calls everything that he has accomplished, everything that you would hold in the worldly standard as meaningful, he calls it rubbish. And matter of fact, there's other translations that, that say he uses an even stronger language of something close to dog, something I can't say in church, dog doo-doo. Like, like he uses that strong of language to talk about his accomplishments. He says, whatever I've done, whatever you think is, 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 is impressive to you, it's garbage compared to the, to the, to the value of knowing Jesus. It's, it's, it's rubbish. It's dog doo-doo compared to me knowing Jesus personally. He says, it's a loss. It's a total loss. I don't need any of those credentials. I don't need to polish my resume anymore. The only reference I need is Jesus. The only person who explains and, and gives me worth is Jesus, the person of Jesus. Everything I had before, it doesn't matter. That's just Paul. I don't know about you guys. but Sometimes I feel like we feel the need to put our credentials out there. Some of you may be like me, who are the humble braggers. Some of you are a little more out there. You're the out there braggers. You just don't care who knows that you're amazing. Yeah, I'm great. Look at me. I mean, look at what I've done. Look at my resume. And then there's some of you who don't think very much of yourselves at all. Some of you who would rather not show your resume, who wish you had a little more to put up there. To, Man, I wish I had a little more to give. I wish I had this skill or this gift. I wish I could write. I wish I could sing. I wish I could speak. I wish I could. It's all garbage. It's all garbage compared to the worth of knowing who Jesus is. The purpose why we're all sitting here is not so we can elevate our status. It's not so I can pad my resume. It's not so that you can have something good to take with you and use to elevate yourself. It's all so that we can know Jesus. And if that's not what we're doing here, we're missing the point. We're missing the whole point. Paul was a hard worker. Paul went to the ends of the earth to minister. He was shipwrecked. He was physically harmed. He was... He had his whole life basically taken from him, but he saw it as a gift to be able to just know Jesus. See, God doesn't care if you're the Pope or you don't know how to spell the word Pope. Doesn't care. He's going to meet you right where you are. He's going to meet you right where you are. He's going to come and be with you. And what's crazy is he's going to use your story wherever you've come from, whatever it's been that you've gone through or the things that you are afraid or ashamed to even admit to. He's going to use that and say, look, I can take this and make it good. What the devil, what the enemy means for evil, God's going to turn it for good. Not just his good, but your good. 
That's what the that's what the Bible says. He says, when you are helpless, when you are weak, when you are in your sin, at your lowest point, when you didn't have anything to offer me, I came to you and I died for your sins to save you so that you can experience glory with me. That's the whole point. He just wants you to go to him. He just wants you to cling to him. He doesn't care about your resume. He wants you to be with him and experience him and know him because he is the source of all goodness. See, a few weeks ago, KT, uh, Pastor KT preached on uh, this, this idea, like I said, God knows my heart. But he, he took the prodigal son story in Luke 15 that is so widely known. He took it and he flipped it and he reversed it and did all kinds of stuff to that. I didn't even know it could be done with it. And he cho- totally changed my paradigm on that story. See, before when I read that story, I remember thinking, oh, par- you know, prodigal son leaves his dad, uh, wants his inheritance, goes out, spends all his money. And, and, and then a famine hits the land. And that famine is physical, and so he doesn't have anything to eat. And so, you know, nobody's got anything to eat, so he goes back home. The reality that KT laid down, praise God, was that, look, if, if this farmer had enough food to feed his pigs, he didn't think he had something to give himself and maybe his servant. But he said there was no righteousness. There was a famine of righteousness in that land. There was a lack and a deficiency of right living, of knowing God in that land. And this young man was experiencing the deficit of righteousness in which he had gotten himself into by his own living. And so when he realized that where he was at by his own doing was this deficit of righteousness, he got up, he said, man, When I was at home, I had care, I had love, I had provision. When I knew my father, I had all these things, and I took them for granted. And here I am, not even being given the slop that the pigs eat. So he got up. He said, I'm going to go and just offer whatever I've got. I'm going to grovel. I'm going to beg. I'm going to ask my dad to forgive me. And, And hopefully he just lets me sleep by the pigs, and maybe I'll eat better food than them. So he gets up, and he's going back home. And verse 20 of Luke 15, one of the most beautiful, beautiful passages in Scripture. It says, while he was yet, who? He said, while he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran to him and embraced him. And he kissed him. Man, Judah hates when I kiss him. I wrap him up. I said, give me your daddy a kiss. No, daddy, no. I'm like, all right, all right. Every time. And he's like, oh, dad. He loves it. His dad hugged him up. Judah's my son, by the way, for y'all who don't know. <laughs> That's some good context to lay down there. Y'all like, why are you going around kissing kids, man? Like, I've got four kids, just so you know. It's, it's okay. <laughs> so he wraps him up. He hugs him. And he said, and the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You know what the father said? The father said, yep, now you have to work 14 more years and you live out by the pigs in the shed. And then you might be able to step foot in my home, right? That's how the story goes. No, no, that's the book of Joseph version. No, the the father didn't even acknowledge what he says. The father does not even acknowledge his groveling. Like he's, he's, he's ready to give the best speech of his life. 
Father, I'm so sorry. I wish this is what I did wrong. I just want to apologize. I want to bring all this. And his father doesn't even acknowledge him. He says, shh, shh, shh. Get my son these robes. Get the best robes you can find. Clean him up. Put a ring on his finger with my name on it. Because this is my son. He was lost. He was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. Let's party. Let's celebrate. Let's turn it up in here because my son is home. That's my version. How many of you know that's exactly how God feels about you? How many of you know that that's exactly the reaction God has about you every time? Every time you run back to him. Every time. Not not three out of five times. Not 50%, not 75%. Every single time. Hallelujah. These are tears of joy. Because... Because I know that story. I know that when I go back, he takes me. He takes me in. Woo! Every time. That's how God feels about you and you and you and all of you. He embraces you. He'll pick you up and he'll kiss you even while you're trying to push him away. And he'll say, you're my, you're my son. You're my daughter. You don't have to do anything to earn my love. You got to do nothing to earn my acceptance. And my affection. I love you. Brings me to the second point. You can't earn or lose God's help. You can only accept it or reject it. Hmm. In our main passage, we go back, if you can go back to verse 8. In our main passage, it says, Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, in another letter to to the church in Rome, Paul writes to the same apostle, we were still in our sin and utterly helpless. While we were there, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. This is not the language of earning and performance. This is the language of grace. And you can't earn grace and you can't lose grace. You can either accept it or reject it. The prodigal son we just talked about, he chose initially to reject the grace and love and provision and and, and everything that his father had for him. He wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to help himself. He wanted to make sure that his life was lived according to his standards. And so he went and he he, he told his, his father, this is what I want to do. And his father, being a loving father, didn't force him to stay. He gave him the choice. He didn't want him to leave. But he gave him the choice. You can choose to accept my love and my protection and my provision, or you can choose to reject it. His son chose to reject it. But when he got up, but when he got up from that pit that he was in, and he decided, this is what I had back home. I am am going to accept it. Now, that grace was always there. That provision was always there. That protection was always there. It's not that it was greater. Like, he didn't have greater grace because he accepted it. It was there, but his vision, his perspective on God's grace. Y'all, when you have gone through something in life, when you have experienced something tragic, painful, when you need some comforting, Doesn't that person who's in your life that offers comfort just seem a little bit sweeter? Doesn't that person just seem a little bit, man, I 
I'm so glad I have this person next to me. And if you don't have someone like that, I'm asking you, God is there for you. And, this, and the church community is meant to be that extension. So if you're going through something and you don't have someone with you to offer that, that love and protection and acceptance and grace and mercy, man, I'm telling you, Jesus is that source and we as the church are meant to be that hands and feet. But that protection and love is, is no different. It's just our perspective changes when we've gone through something. Prodigal son's perspective changes, and he's left with gratitude. His father says, let's throw a party. I can only imagine. He's sitting there going, what? But, but, what? We're partying, son. And what's the response when somebody throws a party for you? Yay! It's not like, oh, that's cool. I'm glad you're throwing a party. That's fine. No, you're throwing a party for me? Praise God. I saw some of you starting to drift off, so I had to make sure I get your attention. I'm almost done, I promise you. His response was praise, which brings me to my last point. Your performance isn't as important as your praise. So morally, there's nothing wrong about performance. I, as I said, am personally wired that way. I'm a performance-based individual. <clears throat> I'm motivated by positive affirmation. So if you want me to do something, just let me know. That's how you got to do it. There's nothing wrong with performance, right? Um, it's why I love sports so much. It's why I love music. It's why I love film. Uh, because there's something about a good performance that just, it just, it just, right? it just hits, right? It just catches right. Like if you eat a good meal, there's a difference, right? McDonald's, which sometimes can be pretty great, right? Versus expertly prepared meal that just hits every taste bud the correct way. And there's a somewhat spiritual experience about eating food like that. Right? Man, I'm telling you. That's good performance. That chef knew what they were doing, and they used every gift God gave them to put into that dish. The natural consequences of a poor performance are, you know, a student not performing well, you're going to fail. An athlete who doesn't perform well, you're going to get benched. An employee who doesn't perform well, you get fired. Biblical wisdom, again, teaches us that if we're given a task to do or a gift for doing something, we should do it with as much effort and zeal and commitment as God gives us the power to do. The, the idea of work being a bad thing is actually not true. Adam had work to do in the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam work to do. God himself worked. How could it be a bad thing? God worked, and then he rested on the seventh day. Work is not a bad thing. It's the fact that Adam got to work in the garden versus had to work. Got to, had to. Do you got to work right now, or do you get to work? Do you get to work right now, or do you have to work right now? It's perspective. I'm just putting it there for you to think about. God didn't create us to work. God created us to worship. And one of the ways that we worship and praise is in the way we work. God didn't need any more employees for his enterprise. He wasn't trying to build Starbucks heaven. He wasn't trying to hire more people. He didn't need any more. I'm sorry for anybody who works at Starbucks. Just, I love your beverages. They're really delicious. He didn't need more employees. 
What God needed, what God desired, he didn't need it. What God desired was for someone to share in his glory, the goodness that he had to offer. He looked around and he said, I need, I want to share what I've got. You were made to praise God with your whole self, with your work, with your gifts, with your weaknesses even. Paul says that when you know Jesus, you worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. God does not have performance reviews. Thank God. He's waiting on you to receive his grace and his presence on a daily basis so that you may be changed and that you may be a light then to someone else who is walking around in darkness trying to earn their love and acceptance from something else that's not going to satisfy them. We've got one more passage, and then we'll respond by sharing communion. Psalm 34, verse 1 through 3 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble, and, and the NLT translation says, let those who are helpless hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we get ready to respond. Church, God's help is not dependent on what you can do for yourself or how proficient you are at what you do or what he gives you to do. God is not concerned about your resume, what you've done for him, what you've gone through, the things you are more embarrassed about that you want to talk about with nobody. And if God has given you work to do, do it with all your might. Give it everything you've got. Because he's given you the strength and the capacity to do it. Don't be lazy. Work. If he's given you something to do, do it well. Thank him for the opportunity to work, for the ability to, to, to worship him by working. It's an act of praise if you see it that way. Thank God for your weaknesses because they bring you back to relying on him and trusting in him. The prodigal son would not have gone back to his father had he not been in the pit with the pigs. His weaknesses took him away from that grace, but they also brought him back. So thank God for your weaknesses, even when you're experiencing them and when they're painful. Be thankful. Thank God for your strengths and use them as a way to point others to praising God. No, God doesn't just help those who help themselves. That's a book of Josephism. It's not in the Bible. God's help is available to everyone, to me, to you, to the person you think is worst off in the world. It might be that person could not have God's help, not if it's the last thing that I do. Well, it's a good thing it's not up to you. God's help is available to everyone. It's just a matter of accepting it or rejecting it. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you offer your help to all of us. Thank you that you offer your salvation, your gift of eternal life, your gift of presence here in this life for all of us. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, you came and you died for us that we may experience 
your glory, that we may experience your person, that we may know you more deeply. Help us to avoid the pitfalls and traps of the world around us, of the culture that, that wants to move us into a different direction than what you would have us. Give us a biblical worldview. Help us to tap into the word, the gift you've given us to know you in such a way that we are not easily swayed back and forth, blown and tossed by every wind of cunning and teaching. God, help us to ground, to, to ground ourselves in your word and in who you are and help us to be full of grace and love and mercy and to offer that to anyone who we come into contact with because that's what you did for us. Father, we receive what you have to offer us and we cling tightly to it because nothing else will do. There's nothing else that's going to give us satisfaction that's going to give us that which we desire, that which we need, which is your love. I pray these things in your holy name. Amen.